Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum. We range from center-left to center-right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at the Bulwark, and I'm joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, Damon Linker of the Week, and Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center. We do not have a guest this week due to a little snafu in scheduling, but we all have a great deal to say, and so let us jump right in with the first topic, which is, of course, Ukraine and how it is changing our politics, if at all. Let's hear first the ending of the incredibly emotional speech by Volodymyr Zelensky to the U.S. Congress a couple days ago. Strong doesn't mean weak. Strong is brave and ready to fight for the life of his citizens and citizens of the world, for human rights, for freedom, for the right to live decently and to die when your time comes and not when it's wanted by someone else, by your neighbor. Today, the Ukrainian people are defending not only Ukraine, we are fighting for the values of Europe and the world, sacrificing our lives in the name of the future. Linda, before the war began, somebody published a piece in the New York Times saying this Vladimir Zelensky is really in over his head, probably one of the worst timed op-eds in history. It wasn't a crazy thing to think because he had made mistakes and so forth, but he has proved himself to be a remarkable wartime leader. People are comparing him to Churchill. And by the way, as you and I both know from having worked for him, Ronald Reagan, who had been an actor, openly wondered how anybody who had not been an actor could do the job. (laughs) But not only has Zelensky inspired the world, but this war has arguably snapped a lot of people back into a more realistic assessment of political life and the stakes of politics. And with that broad question, I will, I will toss it to you to say where you think we are right now. Let me pose it this way. Do you think Russia is losing this war? Well, it depends on how you define winning and losing. They are in Ukraine. They have destroyed much of Ukraine's infrastructure. They have destroyed civil life in Ukraine. They have destroyed not just property, but human lives. Uh, Volodymyr Zelensky said that there were 100 children who've died. I'm actually surprised the number is that low, and my guess is that it is probably higher than that. I think we don't really know how many children have died. We do know that more than a million children, as well as probably two million or so others, have had to flee to Poland and have had to flee uh, Ukraine. So the Russians may think that they're winning. They've certainly been able to stop Ukrainian society in its tracks. However, they seem also to be very much bogged down. And if they think that by doing this, by killing civilians, by committing what are arguably war crimes in the name of trying to get territory in Ukraine that they are not entitled to, that are not part of Russia, Ukraine is a Soviet nation, that somehow they have won, I think they're wrong. I do think that what the Russians have accomplished is something that no president uh, really in quite a long time since arguably George Herbert Walker Bush and Ronald Reagan were able to unite uh, the country in terms of foreign policy in that part of the world. They have united Americans and our allies in standing up to this kind of aggression. Have we given President Zelensky everything he wanted? No. I know, you know, he ended that very impassioned speech that was also followed by an absolutely heartbreaking video that showed the human face of this war and the casualties. He ended that with a plea to make the skies of Ukraine safe. Clearly, they are not safe. 
There's been a lot of discussion on this program and elsewhere about whether or not the United States and our allies are willing to impose a no-fly zone. I think I understand better today than I have in previous periods after watching a lot of this coverage and reading a lot that it is not as simple as putting NATO or other planes in the sky to create a no-fly zone. It means destroying anti-aircraft missiles and equipment, some of which is located in Russia. So Russia would, if we were to launch from NATO or from the United States, a attack on Russian territory to take out those anti-airplane batteries, it would be viewed as our actually entering the fray and becoming combatants. I have talked a lot about a different kind of no-fly zone, one that would create a humanitarian corridor that would have to be policed from the skies, that would allow food and medicine to get into places like Mariupol. I still think that we are going to end up doing that at some point. But most importantly, what we are doing as a result of all of the pressure that has been brought to bear is we are finally providing the Ukrainians with a wide array of weapons that will allow them to continue to hold off this Russian assault, including new weapons that we'd not talked about before, new kinds of drones that are called switchblade drones that can be used only once but are quite effective because they can't be detected uh, on they radar. They can be carried in a backpack. The smaller ones are five pounds, can be carried in a backpack. We are going to provide perhaps a kind of anti-missile weapon that is from the Soviet era. Slovakia would like to provide those weapons, but they need to be backfilled with weapons from the United States. So we're doing a great deal. Nearly a billion dollars more was promised this week by President Biden. And I think that we are doing what we can now, but I do not put off the table that we are going to end up doing more and that at some point we may end up having to airlift or provide cover for the movement of humanitarian medicine and food into areas that have been devastated in this war. Bill Galston, I'm not shocked by the brutality of this Russian assault on Ukraine, having seen what Russia did in Chechnya, in Grozny, having seen what Russia did in alliance with Bashar al-Assad in Syria. He has leveled cities before. He has attacked hospitals before. He poisons his enemies. He shoots people. I mean, you know, so none of the brutality is a surprise. But what is a surprise to me, and I'd be curious to hear you on this, is how badly it's going for the Russian army in Ukraine. Corey Shockey, who was on a couple weeks ago, here's what she just recently wrote. Russian troops haven't demonstrated basic combined arms proficiency, the ability to coordinate between air power, land power, and long-range firing. They have failed to control the skies, evidently lack stockpiles of precision-guided munitions, and are even communicating on open phone lines. They are looting food and other supplies. It's possible they have experienced more combat deaths in two weeks than the United States did in the entirety of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars combined. And so it is beginning to seem, and maybe, you know, maybe you can pull me back if I'm getting too giddy here, but it's beginning to seem to me that it's not out of the question that Ukraine succeeds with our help, you know, and the world's help. It is not out of the question that Ukraine could do the equivalent of winning the war. And of course, they win if they don't lose. I wouldn't take an even money bet on it. I think the smart bet is still that at some point, the Russian forces will succeed in encircling Kiev, you know, Kharkiv, and some other crucial cities, and just batter them into submission. That is their military doctrine. And clearly, they've adopted it in part out of choice, in part out of necessity. I agree with your assessment, uh, aka Corey Shockey's assessment, 
of how they're doing so far. I think it's a reminder that it took decades for the United States to master the art of joint military operations. We had to pass a new law, the Goldwater-Nichols Act. We had to reorganize the Department of Defense. We had to completely change our training. It didn't happen quickly or easily, and we have the advantage of technology that the Russians evidently still don't. So that's not entirely surprising. What is surprising to me, or at least even more surprising, is how ineffectual their ground forces have turned out to be, because that has always been the long, strong suit for Russia, their army. And they are famous for doggedness, for patience, and ultimately not only staging successful defenses, as was the case in Stalingrad, but also of going on the offensive in a bone-crushing, pulverizing way, accepting losses in order to achieve their objectives. Well, clearly they've accepted losses, lots of them, but they are not succeeding, at least not very quickly, in their objectives on the ground. And clearly the Ukrainians are outsmarting them at every turn, the idea that you have long columns of tanks exposed for days on the open highway, if the Ukrainians had anything like the American Air Force, it would have been like the famous turkey shoot <laughs> in the Second Gulf War. So this has been a real surprise, I think, to military analysts, probably in Russia as well as in the West. And I'm not sure what the consequences of this are going to be, but a lot of the analysis to the effect that Vladimir Putin has spent the past 20 years fundamentally reconfiguring and re-strengthening the uh, Russian military will have to be re-examined because the results to date have not been impressive. Okay, I want to stay with you for one more minute, Bill, because I want to ask you, there's been some criticism of uh, President Biden on the topic of these MiGs, you know, that Poland was going to give to the Ukrainians, they know how to fly these planes, and then we would give other planes to Poland, and, and the administration put the kibosh on that, I guess they thought it was too provocative toward the Russians, but do you think that this was an example, as the critics say, of Biden deterring himself? I don't know, but it certainly hasn't been the administration's finest hour. There is a gathering bipartisan consensus that the planes should not be regarded as a step forward towards escalation, are not provocative. The Ukrainians are not going to use them to attack Russia. They're going to use them to defend themselves. They may not be game changers, and I think some of the president's critics are overestimating the difference they will make. When Kevin McCarthy, after President Zelensky's speech, said that if we give them the MiGs, they'll be able to establish a no-fly zone. I don't know of any serious military analyst who would support that judgment, but clearly the Ukrainians think they're important. It would increase the size of Ukraine's air force by 50%. If there are technical arguments against doing it, well, let's weigh those. But the phrase or the word that the Defense Department spokesman John Kirby used a couple of days ago, namely that transferring them would be quote-unquote escalatory, I think will not survive another few days of congressional debate. And I expect that the administration will end up transferring those planes if they can figure out how to do it. So, Damon, um, other systems that it was interesting in Zelensky's speech to Congress, he did make another plea for a no fly zone, but he understands the situation. And so he said, if that's asking too much, please send us S 300s, which are anti aircraft systems and other weaponry. It looks like the administration is rushing to comply. It looks like there's some bipartisanship for the first time in a very, very long time in American politics on an important issue. The Pew poll found that um, 
an overwhelming majority of the public, 85%, including similar shares of Republicans and Democrats, favors maintaining strict economic sanctions and large majorities favor keeping large numbers of U.S. military forces in NATO in response to the provocation. So the question then becomes, what does this mean for us in terms of our domestic politics? There's now a debate going on as to whether this will disempower the extremists, both on the far left and the far right. What do you make of that argument? And for context, let me read you something from uh, the Democratic Socialists of America, which is an organization that has four U.S. members of the Congress in its ranks, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Rashida Tlaib, Cori Bush, and Jamal Bowman. So they issued a statement right before the war condemning the United States for its brinkmanship, for escalating the crisis, and they said this reaffirms our previous statement saying no to NATO and its imperialist expansionism and disastrous interventions across the world. Ah, yes, the true evildoers. <laughs> Finally <laughs> exposed NATO. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I do think that this is an encouraging development. I mean, what we're really seeing is, I mean, what we've experienced over the past, say, six years or so since the rise of Donald Trump has been an expansion of the normal, if you will. Like, you, you heard a lot of people saying this early on in the Trump administration, that, like, this isn't normal. Well, a lot of things that we thought weren't normal sort of became normal just by repetition and them continuing to happen in different ways. And one manifestation of this on both the right and the left was positions that formerly would have gotten a politician or another public figure, a journalist, to be sort of excluded from mainstream consideration, sort of became acceptable. And in some ways, this could be seen as troublesome, but it became, as the years went by of the Trump administration, we sort of became used to this broader spectrum of belief. So on the left, you had the Cory Bushes of the party uh, staking out very kind of extreme anti-American positions. And then on the right, you had, you could also call them anti-American, but also weirdly like pro-Putinist, you know, and you, you still have Tucker Carlson trying to hold that line on Fox News every night in the face of events and images coming out of the war that are just so appalling that most elected Republicans, along with almost every elected Democrat, just can't end up kind of de facto on the anti-anti-Putin side. It's so outrageous, so morally appalling that people are kind of being forced back into what used to be considered a normal position, which is to realize that, yes, however many mistakes NATO makes or misjudgments I disagree with, that it doesn't just invade a neighboring country in order to conquer it, and it never would. And so what Russia's doing really is beyond the pale and something that needs to be forcefully uh, matched by the threat of force and potentially the use of force if things got out of hand. And that even if that happened awful as it could be, that would not be a way of impugning American or NATO motives. This would be a function of something that the other people did, that Russia did, and in particular what Vladimir Putin has done. And so that kind of that kind of clarity could, I think, potentially have the effect, again, the way I prefer to talk about it is in terms of defining the bounds of what is considered normal. And so, yes, it does seem like as we move forward from this, as long as there isn't forgetting too quickly that there might be a kind of clarity reached in the two parties and in the American electorate that, you know what, we really need to make these kind of baseline moral distinctions and then begin arguing from there. Those distinctions themselves are not up for debate because you can't really sustain the critique in the face of empirical reality. But there are other things that are up for debate, and we're going to get back to them after this brief message. 
Do you know that feeling when you want to keep something private that you've been doing online? Like, I remember I was planning a trip in secret from my husband and, you know, I didn't want him to like just notice all those trips to various travel sites and airline websites. Well, I know most of you are probably thinking, why don't you just use incognito mode? Well, let me tell you something. Incognito mode does not hide your activity. It doesn't matter what mode you use or how many times you clear your browsing history. Your internet service provider can still see every single website you've ever visited. That's why, even when I'm at home, I never go online without using ExpressVPN. It doesn't matter who your internet service provider is. ISPs in the U.S. can legally sell your information to ad companies. ExpressVPN is an app that reroutes your internet connection through their secure servers, so your ISP can't see the sites you visit. ExpressVPN also keeps all of your information secure by encrypting 100% of your data with the most powerful encryption available. Most of the time, I don't even realize I have ExpressVPN on. It runs seamlessly in the background, and it's so easy. All you have to do is tap one button, and you're protected. ExpressVPN is available on all your devices, phones, computers, even your smart TV. So there's no excuse for you not to be using it. Protect your online activity today with the VPN rated number one by Business Insider. Visit my exclusive link at expressvpn.com slash beg to differ, all one word, and you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn dot com slash beg to differ expressvpn.com slash beg to differ to learn more. Bill Galston, you wanted to respond to the democratic socialist statement? Uh, no, I, you know, as the saying goes, that one speaks for itself. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to expand a bit on the answer to your question about the effect of this on U.S. domestic politics. Mm-hmm. I just posted an analytical piece on the Brookings website yesterday. I just sent it to you, as a matter of fact. I found a data source that asked a much more detailed set of questions than Pew did about what the Americans would and would not countenance in response to Russian aggression. And what I found was astonishing unanimity, both on the big picture you know, what's happening, who's the aggressor, who are the good guys, who are the bad guys, uh, but also on specific details. And to sum it all up, if you give Americans a long list of possible responses to the Russian invasion, Americans are in favor of each and every one of them, except for the few that threaten or actually mean a direct confrontation between the United States and Russia, which means that the Biden administration has an enormous amount of room to maneuver in response to President Zelensky's very blunt demand that the United States do more. And uh, that that uh, unity is not only at the level of effect of elected leaders in Congress, but also, I believe, among the American people themselves. I have never seen numbers like these on a potentially controversial public policy issue before. It's as close to unanimity as you ever get in American politics. Right. It's interesting. Of course, these things have a habit of being a little bit ephemeral, but we will see. Linda, I'm going to come to you because I think it's only fair that since we have mentioned the views of the Democratic Socialists of America, that we pay tribute to the uh, craziness on the right, exemplified most publicly by Tucker Carlson, who said explicitly that he was rooting for Russia. That was a couple of years ago. But again, the outlines of the conflict were clear even then. And the people who argue, as Lee Smith did in Tablet, and as the Democratic Socialists of America also argue, that NATO is the aggressor here. You know, NATO has always been a defensive alliance. And people who say that by NATO expanding its membership, that this was an act of provocation toward Russia, and therefore we have to be sensitive to their security concerns, you know, this is rubbish. 
NATO has never attacked anybody. NATO has always been defensive. That was its structure. During the time that the Warsaw Pact existed, by contrast, the Communist Alliance, they invaded several countries, including Czechoslovakia and yeah, Hungary. Czechoslovakia and Hungary, both. They sent troops in. I remember that well in my childhood. Look, I will tell you, I have joked on this program a number of times that I watch Fox News so you don't have to. Yep. And I have been doing that. I have forced myself. But I want to plea for help from my colleagues here on beg to differ. I have to say that Tucker Carlson, whom I watched the other night, nearly gave me a stroke when he started essentially apologizing for Vladimir Putin, which he does almost every night on his show. I got so angry. (laughs) If Tucker Carlson had been within striking distance, I would have pummeled him. So we're for a first strike on Tucker Carlson. I am for a first strike on (laughs) Tucker Carlson. And let me just put the word out there. Tucker, if you see me in a restaurant, I suggest you get out of my way. I'm coming for you. So it is so appalling what is taking place on Fox News. And it's Tucker Carlson, it's Laura Ingram, it's Greg Gutfield. Greg, by the way, he is married to a Ukrainian woman. He just had to help his mother-in-law escape from Ukraine. Mm. So I do not understand this. But one of the things that they are doing, in addition to bashing NATO and acting as if NATO is somehow a threat to world peace is that they are also trying to scare their listeners into thinking that if we do anything more, including providing these S-300s, providing the drone switchblades, providing airplanes, or God forbid, actually setting up a no-fly zone, that Vladimir Putin is going to launch a nuclear attack and that it's going to be justified, essentially. I mean, that's Mm. basically what they are arguing. And it is scaring people. I have members of my extended family. My brother-in-law is a big Tucker Carlson fan. He watches him religiously every night. He's busy talking to my sister about whether or not they can move to the highlands of Mexico to avoid the nuclear strike that's going to hit Tucson because of this. This is really pernicious. And the Russian state agencies are actually saying, use on Russian networks, Tucker Carlson, use him as much as you can. There was a leaked memo about trying to use clips from Tucker Carlson to let the Russian people know that Americans know how dangerous this is and that they're basically calling it on themselves. But I want to say something. Wait, underline that again, Linda. The Russians are using Tucker, Tucker Carlson, Carlson clips, using clips on their, on their propaganda program. television That's exactly shows. right. And other Fox News channel. Uh, I also switched over to One American News. It's so amateurish that I can't believe they have an audience. Uh, Newsmax, uh, I haven't checked out, but I do check out Fox News. But I want to say something for a minute about this question of nuclear weapons, because you and I, worked in the White House for Ronald Reagan during the time that President Reagan was pushing for the Strategic Defense Initiative. On March 23rd, uh, 1983, Ronald Reagan addressed the American people and said that he didn't buy the concept of mad mutual assured destruction. He wanted to be able to create a system that would protect us from a nuclear attack. Can you imagine if the plans for that had continued forward decades later, we probably would have at least some sort of a system that might be capable of intercepting an intercontinental ballistic missile. And we could not be blackmailed in the way that Vladimir Putin is trying to blackmail the West in terms of a nuclear attack. But this whole question of a nuclear attack, whether it be a tactical weapon aimed at either Ukraine or one of the NATO nations, is something that is being used, I think, and is having some effect in stopping us from stopping Vladimir Putin in his tracks. It is holding us back from doing every single thing we could be doing to stop this terrible war. Oh, there is absolutely no question in my mind, and I'm sure everybody on this panel would agree, that if Putin did not have his hands on a nuclear arsenal, 
his army would be gone by now. I mean, we would have intervened. There was a different imbalance during the Cold War era. The Soviet Union had a much bigger and more effective conventional force than the NATO nations did. Well, we know it was bigger. We're not sure about its effectiveness. (laughs) It It may not have been. Right. But the point was, you know, we introduced the idea of tactical nuclear weapons in case there was ever a kind of ground war that we needed to rescue NATO nations from. But now... Russia is in the position of having the inferior conventional force and therefore only being able to blackmail us because they have nuclear weapons. And oh, by the way, North Korea, Kim Jong-un, the boyfriend of Donald Trump, now apparently- They fell in love. They fell in love and wrote love letters. And he even tried to keep those love letters, took them from the White House improperly. Well, it turns out that he now has an estimated 60 nuclear weapons. Since his love affair with Donald Trump, he has created an intercontinental ballistic missile system. And we believe that he has ICBMs that are capable of reaching the United States. And he is producing up to six new nuclear weapons every year. So this idea of coming up with some sort of a system to prevent an intercontinental ballistic missile attack on the United States homeland is important. And I hope that all of this renewed interest in defending ourselves and spending money on defense, to spending money on research and creating new weapon systems will get us back to Ronald Reagan's idea of let's move forward to try to protect ourselves, to create a protective system, a protective shield. We will continue to consider this after this break. Saving money has never been more important. But what more can you do to add money to your budget? How about refinance your mortgage? It's a viable solution that may save you up to $1,000 a month. That's right, a month. Here's how it works. You call American Financing for a free mortgage review. No pressure, no obligation, no upfront or hidden fees. Just a simple conversation with a salary-based mortgage consultant where you learn about custom programs that may be a better fit. Because there's more to a mortgage than just a lower rate. You can access cash, consolidate debt, upgrade your home. You can even skip two mortgage payments. Think of the possibilities and the savings, and then pick up the phone and call American Financing. If you start soon, you could close in as fast as 10 days. Call 888-961-4143. That's 888-961-4143. Or visit AmericanFinancing.net. NMLS 182334, NMLSConsumerAccess.org. Damon, I wanted to ask you about one other aspect of this, and that is some people are saying that this is a real blow to the concept of nationalist populism. Certainly in this country, a lot of the nationalist populists were looking abroad for heroes and certainly found one in Viktor Orban who was a big Putin ally, although he has now backed away. And some even, including Trump, uh, admired Putin himself. Is this going to be a devastating blow for nationalist populism or, or not? I honestly think it's a little too early to say. I'm not quite ready to do a jig (laughs) to celebrate. As I said in my last segment a few minutes ago, clearly there are encouraging developments. It is good to buttress the center, which is, I think, what we are seeing from uh, the clarity of the present moment. But that doesn't mean that the, the kind of nationalist, populist critique of the center is going to go away. And there are complications even within the West. I mean, we've been living through a very heartening you know, strengthening of resolve and solidarity throughout the NATO alliance and awareness among countries like Germany that have long resisted contributing to the alliance as fully as we would have liked and as we see now uh, is needed. Uh, So very encouraging developments. We need to be shipping lots of weapons and soldiers to the eastern front of the alliance to protect the NATO countries from any further Russian aggression. And there seems to be resolve to do that. But at the same time, even within the alliance, we see Viktor Orban, who's up for a re-election in a few months. He's 
you know, going along with the consensus within NATO, but his public statements have very much been along the lines of, we're going to do everything we can to make sure that this war doesn't come to us and sort of, you know, on one level, that's a perfectly reasonable thing to say, but the message seems to be that this isn't our fight. We're really not going to contribute to this very much. Similarly, Poland, which has been doing absolutely amazing things, taking in well over a million refugees, trying to ship the MiGs to Ukraine, all kinds of other things right on the front lines of what's going on, sharing a border with Western Ukraine. Their government, remember, is the Law and Justice Party, which has uh, raised a lot of hackles uh, among more liberal-minded parties and writers, including some on this podcast, for its illiberalism, its purging of the judiciary, of judges it didn't like, and trying to pack it with judges it likes better. And then Turkey is in NATO, and you know we're happy that Turkey is back in NATO and closed the straits to Russian warships. Excellent. Very good. But Erdogan is another of these populist nationalist leaders who remains in power. Is he now all good just because he's come on board with what NATO needs at this moment? I mean, again, for now, it appears he's a little bit in our good graces, and we were very grateful to that. But does it mean that a year or two down the line or more, that disappears, that tension within the semi-West represented by Turkey, not in the EU, but in NATO. Again, too early to say. So I would say encouraging developments, let's hope they continue. And actually, when we get to the end of the podcast and I give my highlight or low light of the week, I'm going to circle back to this theme and gesture toward what we need to be thinking about as we uh, try to figure out how to uh, extend this moment in a positive direction. Okay. I would just note that in France, this appears, at least where where there's an election this year, it does seem to have strengthened uh, the hand of Macron, who is not perfect, but is certainly preferable to Marine Le Pen or Eric Zemmour, his right-wing antagonist. So Absolutely. I mean, this is like perfect timing for the Macron campaign, this whole event. Very good for him. And especially that this seems to have torpedoed Zemmour. He is the most execrable of all the candidates and Mm -hmm. represents something that even if he does not run again, he, I think, plans to hand over the mantle of his movement to a successor. And his being weakened right before the vote is a very good development. Yeah. All right. Let's turn to another aspect of this, which is energy. Linda, I'm going to start with you. Just before the Russian tanks rolled, but when it was very tense and very clear that something could be about to happen, John Kerry said that the war would be a distraction from the green agenda. And Jennifer Granholm, the uh, energy secretary, said that the war represents an urgent moment for green energy. And I'm all for green energy. I really am. And I do believe that in due course, we will get most of our power from wind and solar and geothermal, but we're not there yet. (laughs) And so it's kind of dismaying to see so many key figures in the administration ignoring the problems of energy. What do you think? Well, I absolutely agree. And I, like you, believe in green energy. I have solar on my house. If I lived uh, where there was a lot of wind, I would uh, install wind if it were feasible. Uh, I believe in clean energy. But that does not mean that I also am not in favor of doing things to make the United States more independent and not have to import oil, gas, or any other kind of energy from other countries. But I do think that it's important to recognize that, again, this is a constant theme on Fox News, that somehow Donald Trump made us energy independent. We were going to be net exporters. We were doing so great. And Biden came in, and the next thing you know, we're dependent on Russian oil. Well, it turns out, not quite accurate. (laughs) There have been a lot of fact-checking on this by all the major publications and CNN. We never stopped importing energy during the Trump years. We continued to buy energy from other countries. Yes, the 
Trump policies were, in my view, more forward-thinking in terms of exploration of oil and gas. But, you know, as I understand it, there are oil and gas leases available out there that have already been granted to private companies to do exploration and to do production that are not being used. And they're not being used in part because companies are, you know, not wanting to invest lots of money if the prices are not going to give them a return. Fracking, you know, I lived in Colorado for a number of years. Fracking was very big in Colorado. Some of that fracking they've backed off on because it became not as uh, remunerative to the companies. And I do believe that we ought to do, and I'm not with John Kerry, that uh, we need to essentially abandon our national defense in order to make ourselves, you know, less dependent on oil and gas. And I think nuclear, that is an area that we ought to be doing more. And we ought to, you know, that is one area that I wish the Biden administration were more focused on because that is an area the United States lags very badly in developing nuclear plants. But, you know, this idea that somehow Donald Trump saved us and he, you know, made us in energy independent and now it's this bad guy Biden who's undoing it all. There's almost nothing built in the Keystone Pipeline. So the fact that he stopped the movement forward on the Keystone Pipeline, yeah, I don't I don't think it was a good idea. I would prefer that we kept it online, but you know, it's not as if it was 90% build and then Biden stopped it and then now it's, you know, going to rust. Not only that, the oil still flows. It just flows in tanker trucks, not on a, yeah, not instead, in a pipeline. Right. That's exactly right. It's yes. the pipeline, you know, would have been a more efficient way of getting it to uh, where it needed to. But yeah, it still flows. And, you know, we shouldn't be importing Russian oil. We should, I don't want to see us importing Venezuelan oil too. You know, suddenly we're forgetting that the government there is tyrannical and has done terrible things, starved its people. Its people are fleeing and we're not even taking them in as I think we should be. So it's not that the Democrats and the conservationists and people who want to see more green energy are 100% right, but certainly Donald Trump did not make us energy independent and cut off all importation of oil. I think in 2020, Trump's last full year in office, the U.S. imported something like 8 million barrels per day of crude oil and petroleum products. So we were still doing it under Trump. Bill, the Biden administration sent emissaries to Venezuela, which is, of course, a terrible dictatorial regime whose people are suffering horribly and which has been an ally of Russia and also to Saudi Arabia, no great shakes in the human rights department, trying to find alternate sources, actually more for Europe than for us, since we don't import very much oil and gas. As Linda says, we do import some. But that strikes me as the administration has not really thought this through. It seems to be flailing and saying, oh my God, oh my God, what are we going to, we better go, we better reach out to Venezuela and Saudi Arabia. Anything is better than Russia. Rather than taking a more long-term view and saying, you know what, right now we have a temporary emergency where we need to pump more oil domestically. And if that means drilling on federal lands, so be it. Not our first choice, but we're grownups and we recognize better to give leases on federal lands in the United States than to get it from Saudi Arabia or Venezuela. What say you? What say I, you ask? Answer, we have a timing problem. I'm no happier about going hat in hand to Venezuela and Saudi Arabia than anyone else is. And In the medium term, not the long term, but in the medium term, and the medium term is going to last for 10 or 15 years, we will have to continue to develop fossil fuels in the United States. And we can't discourage the pumping of oil and the transmission of natural gas either, not for our own sake, but for the sake of our allies, particularly in Europe. The Europeans have been caught flat-footed. And part of our alliance with them means doing what we can to protect the people and the governments of Europe from a short-term energy crisis in what is still winter for much of Europe. And what I think is most encouraging is the extent to which this crisis has induced 
Europe to think strategically about its energy future. The situation is going to be very different in 10 or 15 years. I think the Europeans, in the same way that the Germans made the decision to rearm, Europe has made a decision to decouple as much as it possibly can from Russian energy sources. This will strengthen Europe both economically and militarily in the long run. In the short term, the administration, for reasons I can understand, is trying to protect, as I said, the people and the governments of Europe from the short-term consequences, which could be supply shortages, enormous supply spikes, etc. And this is what making choices in an environment in which there aren't any really good choices looks like. And it's not pretty, never is, but sometimes this sort of thing is necessary. So to sum up, there's a short-term problem, there's a medium-term problem, and then there's a long-term solution. And I think that we've been sobered up about the long-term solution. Certainly Europe has, I suspect we have too. I don't think that, in retrospect, Angela Merkel's hasty decision to shut down Germany's nuclear energy sources in response to the Fukushima disaster is going to look very good. And uh, clearly, we and Europe, during an extended transition period, will have to rely in part on nuclear power because the numbers just don't add up otherwise. Thank you for saying that. That's where I was headed. Damon, the nation of France gets 70% of its power from nuclear. The United States Navy has been running its big ships on small nuclear reactors, very safe for 60 years, no problems, none whatsoever. We have the technology This is perfectly green technology, except for the matter of storing nuclear waste, which is totally manageable for grown-ups who recognize that there are always trade-offs in anything in life. This is something that does not pollute the atmosphere, does not create greenhouse gases, and produces abundant energy. The reason it's expensive is regulatory, and that can be overcome too. I just am tearing my hair out at the fact that the developed world, with the exception of France, has just let this slide, has not embraced this obvious answer. Well, uh, I'm not going to beg to differ with you there, Mona. Um, okay. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't go out and protest in favor of nuclear power just because it's usually pretty low on my list of priorities in life, but I don't really give too much credence to the anti-nuclear power movement. I haven't all the way back to the old No Nukes concert back in the late 70s, which I vaguely remember as a child. I remember even then asking my parents, what are they all upset about I don't understand. And frankly, I mean, I live about 40 miles east of the Three Mile Island nuclear power plant, and it still doesn't bother me very much. And that's How many the, people died at the nuclear power accident it, 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 was, it was a near disaster, but it was not that big of a deal. And yet it got lodged in people's minds. There's just something having to do with nuclear being wrapped up with nuclear weapons. And then the fact that it's this kind of invisible sort of power and it relies on backup systems and it kills us without us even knowing it's there because it's radioactivity. Some mixture of kind of anti-modernism and a kind of... Super- Superstition. Uh, superstition. Yeah, it's. Just, I don't. I don't exactly know what it is. I mean, I've lived in Germany, and I know that the Germans kind of have this as a sort of default. They're also very up in arms for reasons that defy my understanding about genetically modified foods. The, 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 oh, a kind no. of superstition, as you said, and I think it's very, very foolish. Now, on the other side, I will grant that transitioning to nuke power when you you know haven't been planning on it for a long time it's this is not a short term solution or even really much of a medium term one i mean well let me beg to differ on that okay because, good we need more yeah, that, yeah. Uh, okay because <laughs> actually france did its switch over to nuclear power within a very few years it is possible to do it quickly and the proper question is compared to what 
I mean, if we're going to, for example, want Europe to rely more on liquefied natural gas, you have to build very expensive and time-consuming ports to both export and import liquefied natural gas. And so that too is time-consuming and expensive. So I actually don't think that it's that necessarily difficult. Okay. In in theory, I guess I would just say I, I'm envisioning lots of environmental impact statements and lawsuits and things gumming up the works here for around a decade before the first brick gets laid. But mm. that might be the case, but you know, we have that kind of problem with all kinds of infrastructure projects. Uh, <laughs> we do. So, That's going to be my highlight of the week, oh, actually. Well, excellent. So uh, yeah, I mean, I don't have much else to say about it other than it seems like a no-brainer that nuclear is an excellent source period and also an excellent transition source of energy as we move toward other forms of renewable energy and other more environmentally friendly options. Thank you very much. Completely agree. Linda, I just wanted to put a footnote also to your comments before about the line from Fox News about, oh, you know, Trump made us energy independent and Biden reversed. Of course, that's nonsense. But also, it's just interesting when you dig into the details about where we import our energy from. Guess what? It's mostly from Canada. Okay. We import four (laughs) times as much oil from Canada as we do from all the OPEC countries. And Mexico, we take some from Mexico. I'm all for that. We do. Most of the places that are rich in fossil fuels, with the exception of the US and Canada, maybe Brazil, most of these places are not nice. Okay. So here they are. The 10 largest oil producers in the world are first, the United States, two, Saudi Arabia, three, Russia four, Canada, five, China, six, Iraq, seven, United Arab Emirates, eight, Brazil, nine, Iran, and 10, Kuwait. So there you go. Another reason to move to nuclear ASAP. (laughs) All right. And with that, we will then turn to our final segment. This episode of Beg to Differ is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show, which features in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds, like Charles Koch and Neil deGrasse Tyson. Every Friday, Jordan also releases a Feedback Friday episode to respond to listener questions, covering everything from conventional problems like leaving a dream job to doozies like helping someone escape an abusive relationship. You can also hear the latest news about Russia featuring a heavy-hitting interview with Garry Kasparov and his experiences with authoritarian governments, and that's just the beginning. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now. Okay, it is now time for our highlight or lowlight of the week, Bill Galston. My highlight of the week appeared on the front page of Thursday's Wall Street Journal. It was an extended, detailed, and wonderful story about the successful Ukrainian defense of the town of Vaznesensk, which is strategically important because it has one of the few bridges, or had, I should say, one of the few bridges over a river that thwarts the Russian advance in the south to the west towards Odessa. And it's a blow-by-blow account of how the Ukrainians' defenders simply outsmarted the Russian attackers and succeeded in driving them back in confusion. They actually abandoned their tanks Many Russian soldiers were wandering around until they finally turned themselves in. I found the story quite revealing and quite inspiring, and it was definitely my highlight of the week. Agreed. Um, I I saw the same piece, and I loved it, and maybe that was part of my um, original question to you, Bill, about, you know, is it possible that the Ukrainians are going to win this war. By the way, the, the piece is also um, has lots of pictures. So uh, it's very, very, very interesting. Okay. Um, 
Linda Chavez. Well, you know, we've done a lot of talking about uh, Putin's American apologists, and we've focused a lot on the apologists on the right, and that's very important. But there is an excellent piece in the brand new issue of Commentary Magazine, April 2022, by my friend and someone I admire deeply for his intellect and his writing ability, and that's Joshua Moravchak. Josh's article is entitled Putin's American Apologists, and he spends a lot of time talking about the Tucker Carlson's and others, but he spends more time than I've seen in the press generally about uh, not just the democratic socialists of America who've gone so far left and crazy. It's embarrassing for those of us who knew that people in that organization like Michael Harrington, uh, when it was uh, originally broke off from the Social Democrats USA. But he spends a lot of time talking about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Rashida Tlaib, Cori Bush, uh, Pramila uh, Jayapal, and what they have said on this war in Ukraine. And it's shocking. And again, sort of reading this issue of commentary, reading Josh's piece, but also other pieces in it, it reminds me why I'm still proud to call myself a neoconservative. Okay. Damon Linker. Yeah, so I need a bit of a uh, of a lead up to my uh, selection that I'll be pointing to uh, for some reading. Uh, you know, we talked earlier about whether or not this is a moment for optimism and excitement for a kind of the downfall of populism and nationalism. And another way to talk about these kinds of themes is to say that we've seen the liberal international order sort of vindicated with the way that we've imposed these incredibly harsh sanctions on Russia and kind of galvanized the West against Russia in penalizing them for what they've done in invading Ukraine. And I believe that's all true and definitely worth uh, some applause. But I want to raise some questions about this, which is that the question is whether this really is buttressing the liberal international order or rather the liberal order as part of a bigger international order that is still quite divided and in fact may be becoming more divided over the coming years. This has to do with the fact that if you actually look at a map of the world and you say something like, look how isolated Russia has become, you actually realize very quickly that what we're talking about is the United States and Europe with Japan in there and a few other countries. And then on the other side, on Russia's side, pretty strongly, not as strongly, I think, as Russia would like. But still, on its side, you have China, the most populous nation in the world. You have India, which is even a little more uh, ambivalent about it, but still leaning in Moscow's direction quite a bit. You have the Gulf states in the Middle East, which are trying to play both sides, as they tend to do, but definitely inclining in Russia's direction. And then South America and Africa sort of sitting it out. This points, I think, to a world that could remain pretty divided uh, over the coming years and in a way that's, uh, that's interesting and sometimes ominous when you think about it. So one way to look at this problem is to think about it in terms of reserve currency. The reason why only the United States, Europe, Japan, and a few other countries can inflict so much pain on Russia is because the dollar is the world's reserve currency, and so our sanctions really, really bite. How could the other nations of the world, China, India, and so forth, along with Russia, get around something like this in the future, which you can bet they're thinking about? The only way to really do it would be to rely on an alternative to the dollar for a reserve currency. And on that note, I will point to my highlight of the week, a very modest article in the Wall Street Journal titled, Saudi Arabia Considers Accepting Yuan Instead of Dollars for Chinese Oil Sales. That's the very first inkling of the kind of thing that we want to be on the lookout for more signs. That is the kind of thing that you would start to see more widespread around the world if we did have to start worrying about other countries of the world trying to kind of divide off from a dollar-focused world in favor of a kind of bifurcated economic system where you had the Western countries relying on the dollar and potentially China's currency serving as the reserve currency for the rest. So 
food for thought down the line. It's a big issue with lots of complexity, but worth thinking about, I think. By the way, if we were less dependent on Saudi Arabian oil, that is the world where it wouldn't be as big an issue, right? Right. All right. Thank you for that. I would like to draw attention to a piece by Ezra Klein that appeared in the New York Times called Government is Flailing in Part Because Liberals Hobbled It. And it's sort of a long look back at regulation and how especially environmental regulation began with very, very noble goals and even noble effects. I mean, we did clean up the air and the water and so forth. But he said, as with most things, they can outlive their usefulness. And he quotes Alex Trembath, the problem is a bunch of the regulatory law doesn't penalize or regulate pollution. It penalizes and regulates technology, infrastructure, and growth, often quite explicitly. That's how putatively environmental regulations are used to block laws that would lower pollution and make society more resource efficient. And uh, he gives many examples of environmental laws being used by the not-in-my-backyard types and others to prevent needed upgrades to our infrastructure, things that will make actually our environment greener. And it's a very important contribution, I think, because we tend to forget that even the best intentioned laws can have unintended consequences, or they can outlive their usefulness, as in this case. So I I recommend it. New York Times, I'll put it in the show notes. And with that, I want to thank the panel. I want to thank all of our listeners. Thanks also for your ratings and reviews. Much appreciated. And all your emails. I can be reached at monacharon at thebulwark.com. You can also comment on Twitter and circulate our podcast by retweeting because that helps bring new listeners and we always appreciate it. So we will return next week as every week. Thank you. Thank you.